This is Season 6, Episode 4, Honouring Your Inner Winter with Becca P. Australi. Becca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and I'm curious, we were just talking that spring's kind of emerging there. Do you feel like uh, that's aligning with the season of life that you're in or do you feel like you're in a different season right now? Mm, Wow, extremely relevant question for my life. (laughs) I just (laughs) have been in the deepest of winters and uh, have been telling people, well, I'll say I had a child 17 months ago and I've been in a winter ever for 17 months, a personal winter. And uh, I've sort of shut things down as much as possible in my life uh, to simplify and make it small so that I can be in winter. And people are like, oh, so we should see like when the flowers bloom on the trees. And I'm like, yeah, I I don't know when my bones like warm and when my heart blossoms, like that's when I'll return. And the the blossoms have started to come to, I live on the side of a hill in Northern California in the US and the blossoms are just coming and I can feel my heart starting to blossom. Like it really truly is aligning. And I, I thought I'd be in winter for a lot longer, but it is, it's a slow, subtle um, softening and melting of the frost that feels welcome and not too rushed. And that's what I'm looking for Mm. in my life now. Yeah. And I find the emergence into spring so compelling because it is a little chaotic, like sometimes, you know, and the growth is not always linear and steady and there's great excitement and anticipation in that and then I also find I don't know whether you feel this like some trepidation with coming out of a winter of like that tentative foot forward of am I going to be able to hold this am I going to be able to be the channel of this am I going to be able to steward this enormous creative force that's coming through so how are you how are you tending to that slowly or yeah how are you holding that Mm. yeah I think I've I've been in devotion to seasonal cyclical living for nearly a decade now. So I've wisened myself enough to know that seasonal transition is clunky. Yeah. Uh, and I find it particularly clunky um, going into winter and coming out for me personally. Uh, so I just look to the land, right, to show me those ways, which is what you're saying, like, there's a real stop start energy of winter to spring that I find at least the lands I've lived on uh, because I know bioregions are all different, right? They're all different with how they experience seasons. And then our bodies are all are our own little bioregions, right? So I'm, I feel like I get it now that it's not like one day the flower blooms and the sun shines and it's spring mm-hmm. and you can, you start get to, sowing the seeds and watering the seedlings and like, let's go, let's go. I am aware that it is, it can be subtle and gentle and often even like a little bit intense. Uh, In 
uh, the northeastern part of the United States, like uh, Vermont and Maine, there's there's winter and there's spring, and in between them, it's there's mud season. It's literally called mud season because over there it snows really intensely and long and it gets really cold and it's dark for a long time because it's quite north. And, uh, and then the snow has to melt. And then what happens to the soil underneath the snow is it gets really wet and muddy. And then that it's a mess. It's just like a messy, slippery, muddy mess. And then from there, the seedlings, <clears throat> the seedlings can sprout and the flowers come and it's glorious. And so I always remember like there's mud season, Becca, there's mud season. So in this moment, I'm, it's pre-mud season <laughs> for me personally, but I'm aware it's coming. And there's like the part of me that's really looking forward to emerging from the cave and really looking forward to being creative. I have so many ideas again, but I, I, I've gone too fast out of winter into spring in my body and in the world enough to know that I'll slip in the mud and fall. So slow and steady is just like the new mantra of my life, just like the seasons are. Mm, I'd so relate to mud season, <laughs> just yeah. going away too fast in that transition. And I I also find, because we're on the opposite side of the world and bringing mm-hmm. the fullness, like, I do the same. I can do the same for the transition we're in from summer to autumn is I'm so keen to like get cozy and get the stews on the stove and like start like wintering, you know, that my brain is kind of like, no, we still need the sun. We still need the serotonin, like get back outside. Um, Yeah. I think the opposite can happen too, but I love, yeah, I love that description. And I'm curious, I guess, in that winter season that you've been in, what have you been traversing or exploring or expressing or what's come to be known to you during this particular personal winter? Hmm. Ooh, a return to care. A return to care in, uh, I've just gone through this massive rite of passage in becoming a mother and, um, in many ways I now like share my body with another human. And so all these practices I had before having a child, it's just like begin again. I've been wiped clean and I'm beginning again with the memory of before. Right. So the first step I did and finally recognizing I was in an extended winter uh, was just drastically simplify my life, make my life very, very small. And I think that's been the best tool, the best learning, the most um, potent one for me, someone who is extroverted and wants to be doing things and was quite uh, scared that just like FOMO, a real fear of missing out is, is a common feeling for me. And so to make my commitment small, to put um, spiritual boundaries in place, to put you know, autoresponders on my emails to just make it so that there weren't a lot of expectations of me mm-hmm. has been the most healing wintering practice of and have it turning off my phone, uh, letting people know like I am not extremely available 
uncomfortable for them saying no, learning how to elegantly say no. Uh, it's just been a gift to really make my world small uh, in a time where I just didn't have a lot of, I haven't had a huge capacity for what's been going on in the world, the influx of news and information. Being in an inner winter meant, you know, like a little bit of like depression, you know, there's a, Mm. there's like an ancestral sense of winter of being down. And that's like a part of it, right. The down before the up. And so uh, it's just been helpful to me to give myself permission to make my world more manageable with my lower capacity. And so that has been the ultimate care for self for me. And then it feels like a modeling for others that I find folks in my community that I hold close and dear doing the same. Uh, and it just feels like the most uh, relevant coping mechanism to these times. Mm-hmm. It feels like the antidote to these times to me. Like yeah. I love the description and you said it a few times and every time my bones just did something of like I made my life small and how countercultural that is and how mm-hmm. potent that is and how in my own life I, I struggle with, um, I guess, in with my neurodiverse brain in like I'm constantly in periods of expansion and contraction simultaneously, you know, mm. like my body wants slow and my head is in love with life and creativity and ideas and conversations and like life as expressed through the natural world, you know. And so for me learning to live a small life uh, in a really local life uh, has been the greatest gift in dialing down those expectations that tend to pull me out of my body or bring some kind of fight between my head and my body that doesn't mm. need to be there. I, and I love what you said about expectations. And I wonder, um, I wonder within that what you found folks response has been to you in air quotes using this word small life like what what are we how do we respond to that do you think culturally Mm. well because I've made my life so small I don't know (laughs) 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 what most but that's like a whole practice for me too of being like I I can't like expend energy on what everyone is thinking of me um, which I have, I have spent a lot of energy on in my life, um, particularly because in this inner winter, I launched a book, I came out with a book, uh, in which there is a lot of attention to how I am perceived, but I, I, the only way I could do it is if I kept my life and my efforts useful and small. And that was my practice throughout, throughout the last four months that I've been promoting this book, uh, because, I have to be in integrity with my work and with my life and with my body. Um, But I've just had really powerful, important conversations because my inner winter may be because I um, have just gone through like a massive life change, but we're also in a worldwide pandemic. We're also in a place in history, in a time with the culture where so many people are feeling similar feelings, whether they would categorize it as a as an inner winter or not I have just found 
my permission for self has been permission for others and has created more meaningful conversations. Even if the conversations are like someone asking me for my time and me saying, you know, I just, I don't have the space for that right now. And their response feeling, wow, cool. Thank you. Wonderful. I just blessings on your rest. And me being like, wow, I was so, I'm so touched by your words. Thank you. And that's the end of the interaction. So yeah, it feels like spell work. I like to look at it in that way that when we make our lives smaller or more boundaried, um, we are casting a spell for, or unspelling this, this myth that we need to be um, moving at a pace that's far ahead of the earth's and that we need to be connected to all things and that we can easily digest it and manage it and regulate our nervous systems at that pace. None of us can. Mm -hmm. So the more we can just make that out loud a thing, the better we all can adjust. And give ourselves a little bit of grace and compassion in that and rewire the shame story that so many folks I speak to hold, which is, and and in myself, I've held many years of like, but my body just doesn't work and everyone else's does. Like no no one's does. No one's, I love what you said about we can't possibly like metabolise or digest or compost the inputs at this point and yet there's this perception because of culture that somehow we're doing it wrong and somehow reorienting towards small or local or tiny or slow or any of these concepts makes us bad or wrong. And I think on the converse, there can also be this tendency to when we're in seasons of wildfire or flood or summer or you know that we make that wrong too yeah. so what's been your relationship with unlearning and particularly your relationship with shame resilience mm-hmm. that's also extremely relevant to what I'm going through in this moment mm-hmm. uh which is um yeah the way I talk to myself versus the way I coach and embody and podcast and write about and encourage others Mm. and really seeing how uh, just even like admitting the truth, which was I've been in an inner winter for 17 months, uh, brought about shame that if like a beloved friend or a reader or podcast listener came up to me and said that I would just like wrap my arms around them and say, no, no. Oh my gosh. Thank you for being so brave and sharing the truth. And, but with me, I have found like, Ooh, that's hard. That's actually hard for me to do. Why is that hard for me to do? Like what standards am I holding myself to that? I would never hold literally anyone else to. And why is that to really see like the internalization of the systems we live under, you know, Mm. Uh, the internalization of um, capitalist productivity culture, the internalization of um, martyr mother mothering, the internalization of uh, patriarchy. So it's it's a shock. It was a shock, really, for me because I had a whole story that I was quite healed and unlearned. 
And then I, I reached a new layer. We, we went to the next layer down. So it's been important for me to tell the truth because the shame shrinks and dies in the, tr- in the light of truth. So that's, that's been the practice for me is to say, I have been feeling shame. I've been feeling comparison. Uh, I have really made some pretty prolific stories about how everyone has it figured out, but me. And I'm quite liberated in telling the truth. It's the biggest sigh of relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's vulnerable, right? It's really quite vulnerable. Um, but it's definitely my practice as a talker. <laughs> Someone has got to talk it out. That feels good for me. Mm, me too. And just having having those truths presenced, I think, is like it kind of, to me, holds within it the possibility of a different systemic, structural life, culture, way of being that is inherently different from the patriarchal dominant colonial capitalist one we have now right like I think Mm. the the radical notion of saying this just isn't working for me is worlds are contained within that and yet how much that needs to be held and met by often relationally to be able to make that possible. And I know that a lot of your work has focused around revillaging in the past and Mm -hmm. around community. And I'm wondering how in your inner winter that that conceptualization of community might've changed or how you're thinking about that concept of revillaging now. Oh, it's an obsession. (laughs) I'd say it's a, I really am understanding how much, I think I got into a place of deep need. I'd say bottomless need, like deep, deep need that no one person could fulfill. I think I I, I looked to my partner and I looked to my primary friendships in a way that scared them because I, and I have felt that way as the friend of, of someone who's grieving or going through a big life transition, just had a baby, I've felt their need and I've, I've leaned back like, Ugh, that's so intense. And then for me to have felt that bottomless aching need for connection, community support and the grief that, Oh, that's, that's like, that's why we need to be surrounded by 20, 30, 40, 50 people in a community structure that's that's the only way. I know I looked to my partner to fulfill and to support all my needs. And then I had a friend say, like, one man is not a village. And I thought, oh, shit. Like, wow, this is an ancestral, ancient, um, natural, primal need that all human beings have. Uh, in because mo- all human beings go through radical life transition in which that need is great. And then we live in a system where rugged individualism is um, lauded, at least in the, you know, the industrialized world where you and I are talking from, in which having need and needing support is either a sign of weakness or a privilege, you know, that for the privileged few, um, getting it. So... Yeah, the, the humbling of the inner winter and the need that I had in that. It wasn't like I went into the cave alone and was okay. It was like, I need to power down and I need to be surrounded by 
folks to both support me, to hold my hand, to cry with me, to make me laugh, to play, to hold my baby while I nap, like all these things. And so that's, whereas um, before it was like uh, intellectual, now it's like urgent. <laughs> so, uh, and I have talked to folks who go through, it's often an, a child or, or an illness or grief or a worldwide pandemic that has brought on this like, oh, it is, it is a collective need and um, a struggle. It's like just, I see it as sort of right beneath the surface mm. of so much of like the trauma of these times. And uh, I don't have the answers, right? I don't have the roadmap because it's complicated and we all have stuff and baggage around it, but it is an obsession for sure. Mm. I was so moved when I listened to your conversation with your wonderful doula. I don't know whether you would even call mm. it doula because it, the relationship is so much more multifaceted than that. But what it really struck me was, and something I try and communicate but struggle with, is that just the magnitude of what we're trying to do right, in that mm. a lot of us have one foot in the system uh, because financially we need to economically mm. and then we're trying to transform them and then we're trying to end ancestral patterns and, mm -hmm. like, make new ways of being in relationship with our children and then there's this whole piece that we're radically, very quickly trying to build the skills that have been forgotten that allow mm. us to be in relationship together. And to me, that's like a critical piece. It's like it's a set of skills and a set of perspectives and it's not linear and it's not a roadmap per se, but it is like, you know, to be able to communicate vulnerably with another and express our needs healthily, there's a certain level of safety that's required in the body to do that, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, like for you, these experiments into deeper forms of relationship and village, how was that process for you and how did you come to, I guess, land in a place, which is what I heard so clearly when you were talking with your beautiful doula of like, we're in this liminal space. I don't know what this is, but we're kind of working it out as we go. Yeah. We get there. Yeah, mm, you bring up a really good point about communication skills and and re relationality, and we all bring different. Yeah, like how is that modeled for us in our families? What level of traumas are we bringing? What's our somatic experience? Um, and I personally feel like, you know, the last two years of mostly communicating on the internet with each other has created an even greater challenge of our ability to relate to each other. And I think this wonderful woman, Bethany Garola, who was a postpartum doula, who basically like I had such, I had the need, the bottomless need. And she said, I can't, I can't fulfill it all, but I can really come in here and support you in a deeper way. And we, we both had a, basically a communication field in which we explored our needs, both of us and, and um, the levels of support and capacity. And it was a really beautiful 10 months we spent together in which I realized 
a lot of what I'm craving, I believe needs to happen. Yeah. In physical spaces, one-on-one in a slow way so that our bodies can co-regulate together and I, I used to be the ultimate rusher, impatient, anxious human being. It still comes up for me. And so a lot of us are feeling this urgent desire to revillage, to reconnect, to feel community. And then it takes time and effort and um, conflict coherence. Like it's hard. <laughs> it's basically yeah. hard. Yeah. And the, often the ones who are craving it the most are often the ones who are the least resourced. Yeah. And often the ones who rush to the aid of each other's are also the least resourced because we're that close to the pain. So what I've noticed is, you know, I'm, I'm a mother and uh, the, our friends down the street got COVID really bad and have baby twins. And I was the only one. <laughs> who ran out and brought them a casserole. Mm. No one else did. And I'm like, I can't be the only person, the one with a toddler, you know, who's like working and trying and like waking up at night. At least, no, I was the only one. Like, why is that? And it's, yeah, it's an interesting, and I would love, I guess my, I wonder if that, this is like the, the theme of my spring and the spring here in the Northern Hemisphere in 2022 is, is, is looking more closely at that. Like how can we, not just like those of us who are interested in building the coherent skills for relation relationality, but like what about the elderly neighbors down the street from me who are quite conservative and quite individualist and don't want to be bothered? Like how can I practice that with them? Mm. You know, that's my curiosity. Mm. It's such a beautiful... Uh, reorientation to to really take that practice into the spaces where oh it's like a little it's it's a little edge isn't it of like I, I don't this this these folks might not have the same values as me and yet they're still going to tap into that willingness to connect on some level and also tap into a re-identification away from a productive being or even a mother into like neighbor and mm. one who lives on these lands, this in our case stolen lands, one mm-hmm. who uh, has the pear tree, you know, like re-identifying ourselves in place and relationally I think uh, is is part of the antidote too. But I I want to come back to this, this idea of... Um, the messiness of relationship and why I think sometimes like the fantasy of the village doesn't always marry up when like we start to do experiments and Uh all of our stuff comes up and you were saying about how much we need to titrate that and take time I was thinking about my daughter my six-year-old got starting school this year and she's only doing part-time but like the presumption in our culture is like well she'll socialize and get all this social really social healthy relational learning because she's just in the space with other beings and yet in the systems it's not super scaffolded and when there's a fight or a rupture there's not support because there's just too many kids and like that kind of such 
slow, steady work at the start of like that first rupture you have with someone and allowing that to be held. So all of that learning and all of the trauma and all of the stuff that we have come up can be held and alchemized. It doesn't have to be that slow forever, right? It's just like that first time if we we're able to go so much slower and feel what comes up in relationship, just how drastically different we'd, we'd move within them from that point onward. So how do you mm. think we do that like together and what hope do you have if we do find ways to follow that yearning to come back together again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just, I'm not the expert on this. I am, I am but uh, a curious traveler on this journey. Uh, and I have a podcast called Belonging where I interviewed um, a woman named Rachel Maddox. Uh, and she's like a trauma and sexuality coach. And she has a, a program called Rebloom. And we talked on an episode of my podcast about this very thing. And she blew my mind with this idea that not like the village is going to look different for everyone based on how much their nervous systems can handle, Mm. you know, what their upbringing was, like whether they are part of a religion, like whether they're part of a cult, whether they're um, they have children or not. And that what if we can take, um, you know, more of like a permaculture diversity minded approach to everyone finding and taking themselves to like their edges, like what, what they're able to do in their lifetime. And so it's like, for some people, maybe that's like a shared backyard and their kids played together. And for others, you know, it's like, they all are at a Waldorf school. And then for others, it's like, um, a, a community, a lived, a living community for elders. And then for other people, it's like a land-based agreement-based, you know, like work trade system. And maybe it's, you know, um, a multi-generational f- family building, like there's all these different ways. And so that helps me feel more expansive. I think when I'm just like, I have to find the solution and there's only one solution, like that's the systems within me. Um, making it linear. And then I just am reminded that like the ways of the tree internet and the ways of the mycelium um, are like, it's a web and, and like every organism finds its best location to flourish. So as far as like, how do we as humans (laughs) come to a place of, of um, like nervous system safety and like conflict coherence, like, I don't know. I don't, not everyone's going to go on the same boat. That's like an Adrian Marie Brown reference uh, of talking about like, not everyone's going to choose the same boat and not everyone's going to choose it. And some people are never going to choose community because it's too scary or it's just not of interest. And then there are those of us who are like, it is imperative. Um, so that's a little rambly, but those are my thoughts at the moment of like, well, maybe I should just be focusing on what I'm calling in and what I um, am able and willing to take myself to, and then be encouraging of others to do it, not the way I'm doing it, but to look at it in the, uh, with the same lens. 
I love that so much. Thanks, Becca, because I think just having choice of how we define community in any season of life is so liberating in and of itself that sometimes, like I recognise that needing to maintain contact with every being that I've ever been in contact with is my own trauma response, right? Mm. I've done a lot of work on being like my community right now in definition is my horses and that's enough, you know, and that's where my relational learning is right now Uh, because at the end of last year I was just empty and, Mm. yeah, and I think that that freedom to like both redefine it and then move within it and change it is it does something in my body that's really beautiful. So I'm really grateful you shared. And I wanted to finish with a question that's been on my heart and I know has been in, I've been in conversation about too around, you mentioned it before around care being um, for the few, right? Or you mentioned something about our conception of it is that you need to be able to pay for it or have privilege to get it. And I guess there's this nuance and ambiguity in me around knowing that the ways I want to live and see in the world, the ways of being that I think we need to embody in order to create a more regenerative, inclusive culture, um, that in order to do that is predicated on my own privilege, right? To be able to slow down is a privilege. To be able to have space to build community and skills to do that is a privilege. How do you reconcile that within yourself or I guess the conversations that you have around this um, where we can, where it's an end scenario where we can understand that folks that are deeply in the systems are often there not by choice uh, but by design and at the mm-hmm. same time leaning into uh, leveraging the resources we do have in order to create this more regenerative way of being. Mm-hmm. Kind of mm-hmm. going to get me? Uh, I think so. Are, are you talking about contending with the privilege you have and being able to use it as as much as you can for your own care while also the awareness that other folks will never have that or can't ever access that and like the, the tension in, in that. Yeah, totally. And like, you know, we can model and share and um, embody this way of being that is inherently, I guess, anti-capitalist or anti-patriarchal, but I'm well aware that my capacity to do that has a lot to do with the colour of my skin and my education, yes. my family yes. safety network, you know. So I I don't know, it's just yeah. been on my heart of... Oh, my gosh, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, right. And even in, in my practice of making my world small, I mean, like, the privilege in that, right? I think about it all the time. I think about, like... I remember being in the early days, I had a postpartum doula and a partner and all I could think about was single mothers who had to go to work at six weeks postpartum and I would just cry and cry and cry and cry. And it almost prevented me from receiving the care I was giving because it was just such a grief. It's just such a grief. Uh, And yeah, I have lots of thoughts on it. Uh, I think the grief piece is important that we 
can't cut ourselves off from the impacts that this system has on those with like less privilege that are marginalized, right? It's important that we know this and that we grieve that, right? And then that opens our hearts to a deeper empathy and compassion and, and a fire really to bring more justice here, but that's not, you know, our sole job and it's not just us. So it's about putting your mask on before putting others, because remember like we are the least (laughs) resourced. Actually, I don't know if we are the least resourced, but I, in my community am one of the lower resourced humans right now. And I also know that I'm in a season And so I am am really working with this knowledge that I can't do anything to support the uplifting of all until I am like baseline okay, you know? And that has been the work of making my world smaller and remembering care and also caring for my child in all those ways. But that is actually different from shutting my eyes to all the like inequities of the world. Uh, And then something I have a practice in because I have this like level of financial privilege where it's like, I would pay for a day with my postpartum doula and I would send her to, I would say, can you find like a, a young um, mother of a Mexican mother? That's like, there are a lot of Mexican immigrants here. Um, to support her new mother for a day. Uh, And then um, I'm supporting this local uh, birth center and um, mental health clinic that's being built in like a primarily black area of my county. Uh, And like, that's what I can do right now because my time and energy isn't available. Um, But the tension I think will never go away. (laughs) It's the, and I, I find it, I, I like to code it to grief instead of like shame or like, or like, God, I'm not doing it right. It's like, no, there's a grief here. There's a grief here. And how can I expand my, my capacity to hold the grief and also hold the care and joy and like protect my joy and care for myself. Like this is another practice of being able to expand the holding of it all. Uh, And then just keep ringing the alarm bells around the need for all of us to be well, the need for all of us to be supported, the need for all of us to have connections to each other. And finally, I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime. I can't expect it to happen in my lifetime because then I'm gonna move too fast and that's destructive. So it's like next right step, next right step, earth pace. That's so beautiful. Brings like tears behind my eyes to hear you mm. using that language and speaking in that way. I have such a strong desire to change the pace that we are moving within and the ways that we are trying to bring about justice and change. Uh, having been in that space for you know, 15 years and seeing how much damage is done when we're moving in ways that are just reproducing what it is we're trying to <laughs> end. I know, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really healing and reparative to hear you say that. And mm. 
Yeah, I just wanted to open the space, I guess, Becca, like if there's anything else in this beautiful spring emergent season that mm-hmm. um, is here for you that you feel really compelled or called to share before we end up. Mm. Well, I just wanted to say like the romanticizing of the village thing that made me chuckle uh, because I really see that. I see it in myself and I like see it. I mean, mostly the places I am are social media uh, of just like this way. uh, How do I put this? Like we're sitting in the pain of disconnection, of loneliness, of lack of support, of lack of care, of lack of community care, of an individualist competitive society. And we're just like, there has to be a better way, right? And then we see the movie or we we hear the story or we hear or we read Maria Gambutis or something like that. We, we learn about like, you know, our ancestral homelands, our indigenous ways. There's something, right? And then I think that longing from the, pain does create this like romantic version of like, if we just X, right? Like for me, it's like, if I just had like all these grandmas and aunties around me to hold my baby and like know how to like nurse my wounds and then everything would be okay. And what I think that romantic, I think that romanticization is, is uh, it's enlivening in many ways. It's, it gives me fuel, but it's also like not necessarily a bridge builder to the next right step. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, my, my tendency to be conflict avoidant or want to be in circles of sameness where we all just get along and we all have the same values and we all eat the same food and we all parent the same way. Blah, blah, blah. And that's like a trauma response, right? So I'm, I am curious about how we can be working towards revillaging, but also be checking ourselves, questioning what our vision of it is and being willing to adjust the vision based on what is actually possible. Mm. Yes, I love that so much. I, And it just reminds me of like this pain that we have of there's no one here, there's no one here and you're in the middle of a forest, like literally in a deep part of the ecosystem, like below uh-huh. life, right? And then your neighbor's like, hey, and then, you know, your um, friend is like texting you and you're still like, I'm alone, I'm alone. Yes. I'm alone. And exactly. um, we always belong to life. Like we're always in belonging and we're always in relationship. It's just we haven't valued or it's not made made visible. And I think that, yeah, it, you just reminded me of like, changing the lens which requires us to change our physiological state too but we're so rich to be able to be like oh what if there's not actually even an absence and I think that in a capitalist context we always want to build new right like what's that how do we build a village or how do we go back and there was a hell of a lot of things about how villages were run you know, around women's rights, for example, I have no interest in going back to (laughs) zero interest, you know, but how do we compost and metabolize where we are and where we've landed and take all that is good and right and beautiful about that and then take the next step? Like that's what Mm -hmm. I'm curious about, you know? Mm -hmm. Same, same, yeah. So good. Thank you so much for the conversation. I've adored it. And I know everyone listening is going to just receive so much from your settled system in this Mm -hmm. season of life that you're into. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It was a pleasure.